if you have your Bibles, please take them and turn with me to the book of Luke this morning. Luke chapter 4 is where we'll be today. Luke chapter 4, verses 1 through 13. This, uh, this text is, uh, <clears throat> is uh, about 13 verses, so I think uh, I'll be reading the whole text to just give us a sense, and I'll, I'll be working through it as we go through the sermon. But this thus says the word of God. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led around by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they had ended, he became hungry. And the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone. And he led him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, I will give you all this domain and its glory, but it has been handed over to me, and I give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, if you worship me, before me it shall all be yours. Jesus answered him, It is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And he led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands they will bear you up so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. And Jesus answered and said to him, it is said, you should not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished every temptation, he left him until an opportune time. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word this morning, and particularly these 13 verses in this fourth chapter of Luke. I'm grateful, Father, that in it we learn about the temptation of Jesus. We learn um, many practical uh, encouragements and help for us as we ourselves wrestle with temptation and fight temptation in our lives. We thank you, Lord, that this text reveals us more of Christ, our Savior. And Lord, as you walk through this text this morning, show us Christ, show us his glory, show us his, his, um, his, um, <clears throat> his amazing example of faith and dependence upon you and trust in you. And Lord, in whatever trials or whatever temptations that we may be facing, may we imitate him in the same way. And God, we commit this morning's uh, sermon to you and pray that you would be glorified through it. May your spirit fill us and be our teacher and be our guide and convict us, Lord, where we need conviction and encourage us where we need encouragement. And God, we pray that your word would go forth and just be handed and because it is your word that it would accomplish exactly that which you purpose it to do in the hearts of your people. Lord, we know that it will not return void, and we praise you for that. And that's why, Lord, we long to hear from your word today. We long to live by it, to, to dine in it, to feast on it, Father. Feed us now, we pray. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. Today, of course, is a familiar passage for many of us if you studied ever the read through the Gospels, and that's the temptation of Jesus, or the, the temptation of the Son of God. As Christians, perhaps one of the most surprising realities that we probably 
didn't expect when we first became Christians would be that the presence and the persistence of temptation all throughout our lives. We probably thought that somewhere, okay, I wrestle with sin as a new believer, but five years down the road, I'm going to have a beat. No, 10 years down the road. I'm not even going to wrestle with that temptation no more. And then 20, 30 years down the road, oh, I, won't, I probably won't even sin that much anymore. Maybe like once, once a month or something like that. You know, that's what we thought, at least, well, at least I know somebody who thought like that uh, when he was a young Christian. Perhaps you know somebody like that. You know, the fact is, that even though uh, we know that Jesus Christ came to die for our sins, sometimes we, we think that Jesus Christ came to die for our temptations too. And that he would not only remove it from the, uh, the uh, of sin from us and the, the, uh, the penalty and the power of sin, but he, he, somehow he would remove temptation. But we really misunderstand or underestimate the persistence of our sin nature. That our sin nature, as long as we live here in the flesh, as long as we live in this, uh, in this fallen world, temptation to sin and sometimes falling into sin will be a lifelong battle. The good news, however, is that I am freed from the power of sin because of Jesus Christ. All of us who have believed in Jesus Christ are freed from its power that we're incapable of resisting temptation that we have now because of the spirit of God dwelling within us because Jesus has set us free from that slavery to sin and has set us free to a slavery to God, to the Lord, to the spirit. We now have the spirit's enablement to resist temptation, to fight temptation. And what's more, we have a savior who readily comes to our aid in temptation. We don't, I, don't know that we th- I don't normally think about that sometimes and because it's, it's usually it's a reference found in, a, in the book of Hebrews, a, a book that we don't normally think about too often. But it's a precious truth to know that our Savior is able and willing to come to our aid when we are going through temptations. The author of Hebrews writes in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17 and 18, these words, Therefore, he, that is Jesus, had to be made like his brethren in all things. That is, he had to be made like a human being, 100% man, so that he might become a a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. I think many of us have grasped that at some point. Jesus had to become a man so that he could die for the sins of man, right? He had to become a man to die for the sins of man. Verse 18, though, listen, continues. For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, He is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. I love that passage. And that's the key verse. You just highlight that. Jesus was tempted. He was tempted in all things, in that which he suffered. He suffered through temptation on earth. And because of that, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. And those who are tempted are you and me. And brothers and sisters, if you continue to be surprised by your wrestling with temptation against sin, you can be surprised that there is still sin in your life. In fact, you come, as you grow as a Christian, you come, you come to realize that you sin often. In fact, you sin daily. Not, so much, not necessarily in deeds done, but sometimes sins of omission and oftentimes sins in the, 
the heart, sins in our thoughts. Every day we need dependence upon the Lord and thank God, Jesus, our Savior, he's ready to come to our aid. Luke records for us uh, the temptation of Jesus. The times when he himself was tempted in all the ways that we are. This passage uh, gives us encouragement. As we look at this passage, we'll find many encouragements from Jesus' example. It is rich with practical help, practical insight for understanding temptation and also resisting temptation. But to stop there, we, we miss the point. For the main point of this passage is, is that it reveals to us Jesus as the Son of God. That it is he who is this, that it is a vindication of him as the Son of God. It reveals to us and gives us greater confidence of who Jesus is. As we arrive here in the fourth chapter, Luke's gospel has continued basically Jesus' preparation for ministry. I throw out this outline, which we've seen before you know, several times now. In chapter 3, verse 1 through chapter 4, verse 13, we've seen Jesus' the qualifications as the Son of God, his qualifications to come and represent humanity as well as all Israel as the Messiah. In, in these four elements, the forerunner of Jesus, the baptism of Jesus, the genealogy of Jesus, as well as the temptation of Jesus, we see that Jesus is the Messianic Son of God. When we read these passages, we, we confirm in our hearts that, yes, this man, Jesus of Nazareth, really is the Son of God. He really is not the Son of God, not the promised messianic son who would come and to reign over the world. In the genealogy that we just looked at last time, Jesus as the son of Joseph is traced all the way back to the son of Adam, the son of God. That's what we saw, uh, chapter 3, verse 38. Jesus then, we concluded, as, is really the second Adam. Uh, this is a very Pauline kind of doctrine that uh, <clears throat> there's the first Adam, Adam, who sinned, and because of his sin, every human being from then on was born with a sinful nature because sin was imputed from him to, throughout his generations. And not only that, but because, we, because of our sin nature, all of us commit sins. But Jesus comes as the son of Adam, the son of God, because he is the second Adam. He is the one who will come and to fulfill and, and do accomplish that which the first Adam failed. It's fitting that Satan comes now to tempt Jesus just as he tempted the first Adam, but not in a garden, but in a wilderness. Not with an abundance, but in hunger. And in this uh, difficult and extreme setting which we find our Savior in, we find that he shines, outshines every human being that's ever lived and that he perfectly resists all temptation in dependence upon the Holy Spirit. As our faithful high priest and head, we'll see how he succeeds. And by his obedience, Jesus shows basically his commitment to follow his Father's will. So as an outline for us this morning, we're going to look at these three temptations that Jesus experienced Three temptations of the Son of God that reveal his commitment to follow the will of God. And may they be, his, as we observe it, may they be encouragement to us to encourage us in our commitment to follow the will of God in our lives as well. 
All right, let's take a look then. The first temptation we find here that Satan comes to tempt Jesus is he tempts him to question God's provision, to question God's provision. It's a temptation to question God's provision of all things. Verse 1 and 2 give us a setting that we've already read earlier. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan, was led around by the Spirit in the wilderness. There are several things that we might observe about this setting. And the first thing that we might notice is, is the who. Yes, this, this, is, uh, this temptation, oftentimes we think of Jesus and Satan being at odds with one another, being at a cha- challenging, uh, Satan challenging him. But there's a third person that's very present in this, uh, this story, and that is the Holy Spirit. Twice in verse 1, the Spirit is mentioned. Jesus is full of the Holy Spirit. He's filled, that's the same word, filled with that we are uh, finding uh, elsewhere in describing how a person can be filled with the Holy Spirit. It's, uh, <clears throat> and then not only is he full of the Holy Spirit, but he is led around by the Spirit. Jesus is led by the Holy Spirit of God. The same Spirit descended upon Jesus at his baptism, if you recall, and dwelt upon him, where God then declared to him, this is my beloved Son. See, the Spirit of God is pre- very much present in this event. This, this is no mistake. This is not that Jesus is kind of, oops, oh, man, I didn't know that Satan was going to tempt me. Oh, I didn't know. I just kind of happened here. But everything that's taking place is exactly taking place because of the sovereign plan and purposes of God being orchestrated by the Holy Spirit working in Jesus' life and the circumstances that are taking place here. So the Spirit's presence. Now, where is this taking place? We find that this, he was led around by the Spirit in the wilderness, having returned from the Jordan. Now, uh, sometimes we think of the Jordan River where this is referring again back to the baptism of, of John. That was in the wilderness. So this, is a, this was a different kind of wilderness. There's the wilderness in the Jordan, and now he's led around by the Spirit in this wilderness that's away from the Jordan, probably heading back towards, usually in reference towards Jerusalem. This is uh, traditionally being understood as an, a desert wilderness that's northwest of the Dead Sea. And, and you can kind of go to Google Maps one day and just dig around, go look at the northwest Dead Sea, and you see, yeah, it's just like desolate desert. It's nowhere you're in a lot of just a little uh, mountainous region, desert kind of region, and uh, you probably wouldn't be any fun to hang out there. But when, when is this place? It says, it says well, it has the reference to him returning from the Jordan. And that reference connects this event, basically, again, to the baptism of Jesus, that it takes place after his baptism. It's, uh, it's, uh, it's going to be uh, <clears throat> this, this common theme that we've seen here, the emphasis on the Son of God, the connection to the baptism is where Jesus was declared the Son of God by the Father. And then here in the temptation of Jesus... Twice he's going to be challenged, if you are the son of God, then do this, then do that. Uh, as far as how long he's here or he's in the desert, it tells us in verse 2, for 40 days being tempted by the devil, he ate nothing during those days. And when they ended, he became hungry. 40 days in the wilderness, he was, uh, Matthew tells us that he was 40 days fasting in prayer, that is. This 40 days, though, is a, is a very common uh, motif in the Old Testament or in the Bible, actually. It's most likely a reference here is particularly to an allusion to Israel's 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. 
According to Numbers chapter 14, verse 34, Israel was condemned to wander a year for every day that the spies, the 12 spies, had spied out the promised land. Because they had disobeyed, God condemned all Israel, 20 and older, to basically wander for 40 years in that wilderness. Israel had failed to follow God in the wilderness. But Jesus, in contrast, would not. And what's more, even as final confirmation, all of Jesus' quotes from, of Scripture that we've read uh, today are all from the same book. They're all from Deuteronomy. And exactly that's Deuteronomy was written right as Israel was about to leave the wilderness and enter the promised land. So through 40 years in the wilderness, God provided food for Israel. Jesus, in contrast, for 40 days in the wilderness, ate nothing. You gotta, and it's significant because it tries to, the setting is, you, you try to uh, want to grasp the, how Jesus faced the temptation because oftentimes when we read this, we just think of him as being Superman. You know, this is Superman. Okay, yeah, Superman can resist 40 days of temptation. But Jesus is not only 100% God, but he's 100% man. He's as human as you and I are human. And after 40 days of fasting, Probably he didn't eat, he, for sure he didn't eat food. Maybe he had some water. He says became hungry. You know, if you've ever fasted one day, after one day you're hungry, right? You know, you spiritually might do a weekend fast, three days. You're real hungry. So this is quite an understatement when it says here, he became hungry after 40 days of fasting, okay? He was hungry hungry. Okay, so that's not at that moment, and, just as, and he was as hungry of, after 40 days of fasting as you and I would be after 40 days of fasting. Now, I don't suggest you do that, but that can, be very, that, that can be dangerous to our health. But that's when the devil comes. In verse 3, we find the temptation where Satan caused, tempts Jesus to question God's provision. He's, the devil comes to him. Actually, the devil's been tempting. It says he's been tempting him for, for those, during those 40 days. So in various ways, the Satan has already been tempting him. But in this kind of this final day, Satan comes and brings his big guns. He tries to tempt Jesus for the final time with these three particular temptations. He says to him, if you are the son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Notice how Satan phrases the temptation, if you are the son of God. Satan has, of course, he, he, he knows who Jesus is. He, he doesn't have any doubt about who Jesus is. It wasn't really a question of identity, like, uh, show me that you really are the son of God, because I'm not sure, maybe you are, maybe you're not. So if you are, I want you to turn this bread into, the, uh, into this stone into bread. But really, it was a challenge. It was a challenge that Satan was casting down before Jesus, since you are the son of God, therefore you have the power to do so. Why don't you go ahead now, and you're hungry, why don't you just turn this rock into bread so you can eat and fulfill and satisfy your hunger? Provide food for yourself. It's been 40 days. God has not provided for you. Provide for yourself. Now, of course, initially, this temptation to turn a rock into bread, well, that doesn't seem wrong, right? He turns water into wine later on in John chapter 2. So what's wrong with turning rock into bread? 
But Jesus' refusal and reply indicate the temptation that indicate the temptation of the specific temptation that was being offered. Jesus answered him, verse 4, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone. Jesus quotes very briefly here from Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. And the context of Deuteronomy chapter 8 is, is quite significant for us to understand. It's, it's very enlightening, in fact, to get the full grasp of, of what was going on in Jesus' mind. He's wandering around the wilderness for 40 days. He's probably thinking, he is thinking about the Israel's wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. His mind are thinking about the law of God. And his mind is, even as he's tempted, he just oozes Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy chapter 8, Moses is basically recounting to Israel God's faithfulness to them through their wilderness wanderings. And Moses reiterates for Israel God's law that they need to keep, they they must keep for their good. And let me pick up with Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 2. Moses writes, You shall remember all the way which the Lord your God has led you in the wilderness these 40 years, that he may humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. See, the wilderness for Israel was a time of punishment, but it was also a time of testing. It was a time of testing where God would would reveal to them to know what was in their heart, whether they would keep God's commandments or not. And strikingly, that is exactly why Jesus is in the wilderness, to be tested, so that we and Satan and the world might know what is in his heart whether he would keep God's commandments or not. Now here, chapter 8, verse 3, to its fullness, in its fullness, Moses continues, he humbled you and let you be hungry and fed you with manna which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you understand that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. See, Moses wanted Israel to understand that more important than bread was the word of God. More important for your life is the food you eat. More important than, than your life is, but what is important for your life is the word of God. You can have all the bread you want. You can have all your favorite foods. You can have the abundance of food in your, in your refrigerator, in your, in your uh, cabinets. But tonight, God may decree that your life will end. And all that food has no guarantee of life. Or you may have no bread. You may have very little in your cupboards. You may have not, oh, practically an empty refrigerator, but some oil and flour, perhaps. But God may sovereignly keep you alive for another day by his simple decree. See, man does not live on bread alone. Yes, God has ordained it that we would eat food and such. But the point is that Moses reminds Israel, and Jesus is going to make here, is that we live and breathe by the word of God. You and I live and breathe. We exist because of God's mouth, God's word, God's decrees. We depend upon him more than we depend upon bread. Do we grasp that? So many things we want, we think we need. We think we need it more than God. But we need God more than anything that we think we need in this world. See, Israel needed to depend on God's provision for their life. 
And Jesus now understands that he depends on God's provision to live as well. He grasps that taking matters into his own hand and miraculously providing bread for himself would reflect basically a distrust in God's ability to provide for him. God had led him into the wilderness to be tempted. God had not provided food throughout the temptation. But Satan wanted Jesus to doubt God's goodness, God's ability to provide. And although Jesus was hungry, he would wait for God's provision in the wilderness. Jesus' temptation is a very unique temptation. None of us are ever going to be tempted by Satan. Say, hey, Henry, why don't you take, turn this stone into bread? Okay? We're just not, we're not the son of God in that way. But on the other hand, all of us have experienced a similar kind of temptation. The temptation to be, lo- to be, to be drawn by the desires of our heart, the desires of our flesh. We all have natural desires for things, and those things are not necessarily bad. They can be food, they can be drink, they can be sex, they can be rest, they can be other material possessions as well. And none of them may be sinful, but when we do not trust God's will or way to provide, we fall into sin. Jesus demonstrated his commitment to trust in God's provision. He would not question God's provision, though Satan tempted him to do so. Man does not live by bread alone. Man lives by the word, every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. And we do well to remember the same in our own lives. Now, in the second temptation, who is the second temptation, Satan takes a, a different approach. In the second temptation, he causes, he tempts Jesus to question God's plan. God's plan. Verse 5 to 8. Uh, verse 5 and 6 gives us again uh, the sec- sort of a, the setting here. And he, that is saying, led him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. So this uh, is very interesting. Matthew actually says he, he leads him up to a high mountain. <clears throat> but Luke only records that he leads him and shows him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. Of course, there is, or maybe you don't know, but there is no mountain in this world where you can go up to it and see all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. So most likely, most commentators, scholars believe that this was some kind of vision. It was a vision-like setting. He's brought up to a very high place where Satan could then reveal to him all the kingdoms of the world. Just like in a moment of time, in a, in a quick moment right before him, like they flash before him. You know, it's like he unveiled the curtain and said, oh, look at all these kingdoms he shows them all to jesus and then satan offers them all to jesus the emphasis in the greek is on you he says the devil said to him to you i will give all this like a slick home shopping network salesperson. He says, it can all be yours. Right? How many times you were like, oh, I can pick up that phone dial right now. I haven't seen a home shopping network in a long time, but that's why I remember at least. See, Satan was offering the rule over all the kingdoms of the earth. And definitely, and certainly, he had the power to, to give it in this way. John 12, 31 tells us that he's the ruler of the world. 2 Corinthians 4, 4 tells us he's the God of this world. 1 John 5, 19 tells us that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. 
And so there is definitely a sense where this world is under Satan's control, under his authority, and he has some, some limited, delegated authority to give it to others. But then there's, a, there's always a catch. There's one condition. Verse 7. Here's the if. Therefore, if you worship before me, it shall all be yours. The word worship means to bow in reverence. Proskuneo. Sorry, it's Greek slipped out. A simple act of bowing down, bowing down in reverence. If, he, if all Jesus had to do was just simply bow down in reverence before saying, and then get up, and saying was going to give him all the kingdoms of the earth, opened up all the doors of the kingdoms of the earth for to, to sit to be ruled by Jesus. What was Satan offering here? Satan was offering Jesus basically what God had already promised Jesus as the Son of God. We see this promise in Psalm chapter 2. Psalm 2 is a messianic enthronement psalm. It's, uh, but it's interesting that it reveals this interchange between God and his Son. Psalm chapter 2, verse 78, it says, here's the, 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 the messianic Son saying this, I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He that is God said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten of you, begotten you. Ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. See, God has already promised to Jesus, promised to his son that he would give him all the kingdoms of the earth, all the nations under his rule as his inheritance, as his possession. And so Satan basically offers him the very same thing, but Satan's offer is not really the same thing. It's always a counterfeit in some way, and it's a counterfeit in this way as well. He was essentially offering a shortcut to the messianic son of God in a way to become the king and the ruler of the nations of the world. Those of you that were with us with Isaiah, and we studied Isaiah, remember how we went through those very past, various passages that talks about how God promises to us a son who would be a, a wonderful counselor, a, a prince of peace, a, one whose government would never come to an end, whose peace would never come in, his kingdom would be established by righteousness, and all the nations of the earth would flock to him. That, that future kingdom, that future king. Satan was offering him a shortcut. You can have it all, Jesus, if you just bow down to me. See, God's plan would involve Jesus going to the cross and having to bear the sins of the world. But Satan's offer would skip the cross and give Jesus all the authority and all the glory without suffering. But that would result in Jesus ruling over what? Not a nation of redeemed people, but he would have rule over a rebellious nations of the earth. There would be no prince of peace in this case because then as a holy God, he would be a prince of wrath. Instead of serving the Lord God, Jesus would be serving Satan. And Jesus understood this temptation being offered and he answered according to verse 8 of, uh, of Luke chapter 4. Jesus answered him, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Yes, the act 
was to bow down before him. That was that would that is there was the temptation of sin. But what God what Satan was doing here was that he was challenging Jesus to question God's plan for salvation. God's plan for Jesus. This time Jesus here in uh, verse 8 quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 6 verse 13. Deuteronomy chapter 6 is, is what we read in our call to worship. It's the great Shema. Shema means the Hebrew word for hear. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and might. That one. Teach the word, teach it to your children. Bind it on your hearts. Don't forget this word. Talk about it all the time. Live by it. Remember it. But in verses 10 to 13, we pick up the continuation of what I uh, of what we read in the call to worship. And this gives us the context for what Jesus quotes here. <clears throat> Moses writes to Israel, Then it shall come about when the Lord your God brings you into land which he swore to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you great and splendid cities which you did not build, and houses full of good, all good things which you did not fill, and hewn cisterns which you did not dig, vineyards and olive trees which you did not plant, and you eat and are satisfied. Then watch yourself, that you do not forget the Lord who brought you from the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery. You shall fear only the Lord your God, and you shall worship him and swear by his name. See, Moses understood, and God understood, and through Moses, and warned Israel basically to not forget the Lord. Don't forget God. He knew that when they entered the promised land, they would have an abundance of blessings. They would have a prosperity that that they had never known in Egypt. They would for, and when they, because of that prosperity, they would forget God. They would stop worshiping him. They would have luxury at their hands, and they would start dabbling with other, the idols of the other nations. They would worship the, the, whatever the latest trends, whatever was cool, whatever was hip, and instead of worshiping their God. And so that's, that's the warning in verse 13, which Jesus recalls as he rebuffs Satan's offer of the kingdoms of the world. You shall fear only the Lord your God. You shall worship him and swear by him. His name alone. Do not worship anybody else. As for uh, some application for us, I think if you've kind of followed some of the news as far as temptations go, and all of us probably can relate with uh, or even understand that the, that whole college entrance scandal that took place this past week where all these, many of these really wealthy parents, their children are basically set for life. They, they didn't even need to go to college really, right? Yeah. I mean, they had their home, and they, uh, at 18, some of them at 18, 21 were more successful than I will ever be, you know? They were just successful kids. They already had everything given, but their parents offered bribes and whatnot to get their kids into uh, prestigious universities. They cheated, they were caught. But hopefully instead of, I know for us, we kind of look at that and say, wow, man. Uh, some of us think, well, that's probably always been happening. But hopefully none of us are being too quick to condemn. Uh, that's, these people wanted something that was good, at least in their minds. They wanted their children to succeed. And what parent doesn't want your kids to succeed? Uh, I understand that desire. I want to see my kids succeed too. But sometimes when you want something too much, be careful. Be careful, all of us, that we might be willing to do something that is wrong 
to gain it. It may be a good thing, but when you're doing, willing to do anything to get it, then it becomes a wrong thing. Those things become more important than our relationship with God. In effect, we end up worshiping that thing rather than God. We end up worshiping our children or worshiping a possession or worshiping a, a particular uh, uh, prestige instead of God. Jesus teaches us to worship the Lord your God and serve him only. I would also add a second practical tip for resisting temptation. It's already quite obvious from the text, but we see that Jesus sets for us the pattern for fighting temptation. By recalling God's word, almost Jesus resists temptation. Because every temptation is essentially a challenge for us to doubt God, to doubt what God has said. And when we recall truth, when we remember the scriptures in the, in the midst of temptation, it aids us in resisting temptation. It, make, it brings the choice real clear. We're tempted to sin, <clears throat> but you remember you can, uh, what God says, but God says this, and then you're, you're at kind of a, at, a, at, a, uh, at least an even sample where you know you have to choose now. Will I choose to sin? Will I choose what God has said? And, when you do, and if you cry out in dependence upon God, he will come to help you to choose that which is God's word. Memorizing scripture is appropriate. We uh, think we've read before Psalm 119, verse 11, your word I have treasured in my heart that I may not sin against you. We move on then. There's a third uh, temptation that Jesus faces that really show, reveal how he is committed to follow God's will. And Satan then makes one final attempt and tempts Jesus to question God's protection. He's tempted him to God, question God's provision. He's tempted him to question God's plan. Now he tempts him to question God's protection. He, verse 9 through 11, we pick this up. He led him to Jerusalem. So we find, and had him stand in the pinnacle of the temple. So this now takes place in the temple. And it's not too surprising. Uh, Luke oftentimes places an emphasis on the temple. His gospel, or on the temple, his gospel begins in the temple and ends in the temple. Uh, the temple, of course, is that place where God is perceived to dwell among his people. And prior to the, uh, the end of the Old Testament, that's where the Spirit of God uh, would dwell, there in the Holy, above the Holy, in the Holy of Holies. But uh, in Ezekiel, we see this picture of him, the Spirit of God leaving the temple, abandoning the temple. But still, even to, this, to that day, the, Jesus' day, it was still perceived by the Israelites as being a place where the Israelites could go to meet God, to worship God. This was where God would meet them. And so Satan takes Jesus to stand on the pinnacle of the temple, so some very high place on the temple. Many believe that this refers to what's known as the royal uh, porch or the royal portico on the temple's southeast corner. And, and it would overlook the, the Kidron Valley that had a basically, a, uh, and from the top of the, the temple to the bottom of the Kidron Valley was like a 450 feet drop. Uh, when I think about that, well, how far is that? That's like uh, one and a half football fields, okay, drop. That's, that's a pretty big drop. And so, but once again, Saint begins his phrase, his temptation with, if you are the son of God. Another challenge to Jesus to basically utilize his divine power and authority. Saint tempts him basically, real quickly, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from there. Just jump. 
Now, he's not trying to tell him to, to commit suicide. But he says, show your power, Jesus. Jump off. And then Satan has learned a few things from after Jesus quoted scripture. For in verse 10, 11, he quotes scripture. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands they will bear you up so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. He quotes here from Psalm 91, verse 11 and 12. Satan was, of course, uh, as always when he speaks, he's always saying some truth mixed with error. He's twisting scripture to his purposes for, for Jesus here. Yes, this passage describes God's general protection of those who trust in him, but it was never meant to be a permission slip for people to jump off the temple or go jump off a cliff or go stand in front of a, a car or to go handle snakes or whatever dangerous thing that you think you could do in Jesus' name and resist. It's not that kind of protection. It's not like a, something to, to, to uh, uh, like a, um, a, uh, a permission slip, a free pass to do every dangerous thing in the world because God will protect me. The passage describes basically God's general protection of his people. And Satan tempts Jesus to question whether God would protect him. He tells him, if you're really God's son, then you'll jump, and you know his angels, they're going to carry you. They're not going to let you fall down on the stone. But Jesus, how does he resist? He resists Satan's temptation again with Scripture. Verse 12 and 13, and Jesus said to him, it is said, you should not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished every temptation, left him, thrown off the Gentile. So Jesus now quotes again from the scriptures, and he again quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 16. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And the full part of it is, as you tested him at Massa. Massa refers back, this is, uh, <clears throat> refers back to an event that was recorded in, in Exodus chapter 17, verse 7. So there we find what it means to Put the Lord your God to the test. Because Jesus said, we say, don't put the Lord your God to the test. So how do they test him? Back in Exodus 17, 7, the Israelites had basically complained about the lack of water in the wilderness. And so God <clears throat> heard their grumblings, and, and Moses went to God and said, oh, they're, just, they're grumbling all the time. So God eventually provided water for them by having Moses miraculously strike a, a rock, and then water came out. <clears throat> but we see the conclusion of this in Exodus 17, 7. And he named the place Massa and Mirabah. Massa means testing. Mirabah uh, means like uh, quarreling. They're quarreling because of the quarrel of the sons of Israel. And because they tested the Lord saying, is the Lord among us or not? And there's where we get an idea of the, what it means to test the Lord. Is basically when we test God, when we put God to, we basically are really questioning, is God among us or not? And so therefore, I'm going to do something to show that God is among us. But really what we do when we say is God, I'm going to do something to show that God is among us, is a sign that I don't really believe what God has said in his word. That God is with us. That God is omnipresent in the world. He's always with us. He's already promised Israel he would be with them. He'd made promise to Abraham. He'd made promises to Isaac, to Jacob, and all their descendants. He would not leave or he would not forsake them. When we say, is God among us or not? When you say that, basically you're saying, well, we really don't think he is. 
And so therefore, I'm going to do a test to show that he is. If ever you think about even Gideon's fleece, a lot of times people go there and, um, and they think that that's an example for us how to live the Christian life. I got to put out a fleece to know God's will. But Gideon's fleece is a sign of basically Gideon's failure to trust God. Okay, let's study that passage. Okay. So don't, don't, don't be putting out fleeces. God will not allow any harm to fall and uh, to fall his people. Um, and so, such in that, if God is, so know that, that for Jesus, he understood the same temptation was basically a test, just like the attitude to, to, for him to doubt God's presence, God's protection, just as the Israelites had. And to doubt God's protection, God's presence, was a, would be a sin. See, Jesus understood he couldn't, he would, he would not force God's hand to act. He came not to do, he came to do God's will, not to force God to do his will. To test God's protection would be a lack of, a sign of a lack of faith. So Jesus does not doubt God's protection. He would not put God to the test. He trusted in God what God had said. And he knew it more than anyone other because he had been, he had been with God forever in eternity past. Throughout Jesus' ministry, God would protect him. Even as early as the next scene, we're going to see in, in Nazareth, he, he preaches there, he t- says good words, they're all like applauding him. Then he says some more words, and they want to stone him. God would not allow any harm to befall Jesus until the proper time on the cross. You know, sometimes we can fall into the testing the Lord game as well, right? Oh, if he wants me to do this, then, well, then he's going to have to do that. I'm not really sure. Does he want me to do this or that? Well, then I'm just gonna, I was gonna just go do this and just and, and test him. But we should ask ourselves: when you are really seeking God's will, are you really? Is it a reflection instead of a lack of trust in God? A better attitude is that we will take a, a certain. We may decide prayerfully in seeking God's counsel, seeking uh, God the counselors, uh, and then considering the circumstances, and then making a step of faith in a certain direction. And then trust God with whatever results take place. That's how we should respond to, uh, that's how we should live our lives. We should take a page out of Daniel's friends. In Daniel chapter 3, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Well, I love where uh, they basically refuse to bow down to the, to the image of uh, um, King Nebuchadnezzar's idol, and, and so when he said, he gave them one last chance, hey, bow down to me now, and, and I'll, I'll deliver you from the, from the fire furnace. And they said, no, we don't have to go down that road. Well, you know, we're, we're gonna, not going to bow down. And God, and we're, we're going to go down, and if God wants to save us, he can do so. But then they say, if he does not, if he does not, we're still not going to worship God. <laughs> we're going to do the right thing, no matter what the circumstances are. They don't put God to the test. It's not a test for them. They, they, they take, they, they're willing to bear the fire. They know that God will protect them, and even whether it's physically or eternally. We can learn to do, we must learn to do the same. Anyways, with that, we just, uh, we, we end up, we end. Saint leaves Jesus, and we see Jesus comes out being the perfect high priest, perfectly qualified as the son of God. In fact, he, because of his temptation, Jesus, Jesus understands 
when you and I go through temptation. You know, uh, sometimes we have that feeling where no one understands what I'm going through. Of course, we're forgetting 1 Corinthians 10, 13, where there's no com- temptation is common to man, but such as, don't take to overtake, but such as common to man. Basically, there are, whatever temptation you're going through, you're wrestling with, others have gone through it. There are others who are wrestling with it. Not everybody's going through the same struggle, but there are others in this church who are going through the same struggles you are, the same temptations. But if you forget that, remember this, that Jesus knows what you're going through. Jesus understands your temptation. He understands your struggle. He understands the battle because he went through it. In fact, we read in conclusion, the great encouragement from Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. He does. I love that. Jesus sympathizes with our weaknesses. Sometimes we try to be, portray ourselves as strong. I'm strong. But Jesus knows us who we are. We're human beings. In fact, one of the words for human is really emphasized that we're weak. We're just weak. He, he sympathized with us. He knows humanity. He, was, he, he became a human in fact, he knows our weakness. He knows how, what it is to be tempted. One who has been tempted in all things as we are. And how is it that he was tempted? Was he tempted with what we were tempted? Yes. Because in each of the three temptations, he was tempted by basically the three categories of, of, temp, of temptation, the temptations of the world, the lust of the flesh and hungering for the bread, the lust of the eyes when he, when he saw all the, all the nations of the world offered before him, and the boastful pride of life that would cast himself out and, and God would somehow protect him. All these kinds of temptations Jesus underwent, and he understands when you and I go through the same temptations, and yet Jesus is different because he did not sin, and that's, we praise God for that because he did not sin, he was able to die for our sins to set us free from the penalty and the power and one day the very presence of sin. But until then, brothers and sisters, let's keep resisting, fighting, battling against the temptation of sin, not being surprised when it overcomes us, but giving praise because we know that Jesus, that's why Jesus came, to die for our sins. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your word and thank you for these truths. Thank you for the example of Jesus and the temptation he went through that we might receive encouragement. Lord, as we fight and battle temptation, the sin daily in our lives, help us to remember Jesus. Thank you for our compassionate, loving, faithful high priest and Savior who comes to our aid in the, midst of temp- in the face of temptation. Help us to cry out to Jesus whenever we're tempted. Help us to remember your word when, whenever we're tempted, that you might enable us by your, through your son and your spirit to fight and have victory over temptation in our lives. And God... When we fail, we thank you that we have forgiveness. We, have, we do not lose hope because we, are, we have find that we are forgiven because of what Christ has done in our place on the cross. Thank you that he is the perfect son of God who did not take any shortcuts, who did not give in to Satan's temptations, but to, came to fulfill your purposes, your will, to go to the very end, to die on the cross so that all, who believe in him, might have forgiveness. And Father, we look forward to the day when he will return and reign on this earth and be that prince of peace whose government will never end 
God, we pray that that day would come soon. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.